Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. Today is part three of the olive tree. I've been waiting to say that. (laughs) (laughs) And we're supposed to talk Hebrew in this one, or Hebrew parallelism, right? Part three of the olive tree, the olive tree's third part, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So... You remember where we left off last time? I do, I do. So this olive tree is a is a prophecy about the future. And it's a prophecy about the past too, but it tells how Israel is going to come back to God, Israel being, you know, these covenant people who've been scattered around the world. But it's more than that. It tells about how literally everyone's going to come back to God. And this whole story is is represented by a, a tree that was bearing good fruit and then bore bad fruit. And the, the two parts we've covered so far, uh, the first part was the the scattering of Israel, all represented by branches being broke off this tree that was dying and placed in other parts of the world. Well, they start to thrive, and the master of the vineyard and his servant go and check on them in the second part, and, and they're bringing forth fruit. But the one that was placed in the best part of the land, best land, is bringing forth some good fruit and some bad fruit. And so... A long time passes away, and then we get to where we're at now. And they say, hey, uh, this is the end. The end is drawing nigh, and the master and the servant decide to come back in the vineyard one more time. And coming in the vineyard just kind of represents, hey, doing some mighty work in, in the world. So in part two, that mighty work was literally, I think, when Jesus was a man and his resurrection uh, brought to pass him visiting other sheep in other places, some in America and some in lands that we don't know of. So so now the story jumps forward and, and we're in Jacob chapter three and this, uh, oh, around verse 70, I think is where, where the best place to pick back up is. Um, so this tree that was planted in the good part of ground brought forth some tame fruit and some wild fruit. And um, at first, the master said, hey, let's cut off all the bad branches and cast them into the fire. And the, and the servant said, hey, let's, let's let it go for a little while longer. One of these parallels we can draw from this is this promise to the Lamanites. You know, the Lamanites had been wicked, then they got righteous, and the Nephites were bad. But there was always kind of a, a group that was kind of on task and, and a group that wasn't. And, um, and the promise to the Lamanites was while they had been wicked, you know, they, they came to Christ and they were even more righteous than the Nephites. But in the time after Jesus, everyone got bad. Nephites were wiped out. Lamanites were all that was left. But there was a promise they would come back to God again someday. And that, that promise still exists in the future. So so now this, this tr- land where the bad fruit and, and the good fruit was, is going, and places where Jesus visited, there was already good fruit. And now we're going to jump ahead to um, verse 72. Uh, this is beginning the third part. This is the future for us. And it came to pass that a long time passed away, and the Lord of the vineyard said to his servant, Come, let us go down into the vineyard, and we may, that we may labor again in the vineyard. 
And behold, the time draweth near, and the end soon cometh. Wherefore, I must lay up fruit against the season unto mine own self. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said, to the, and the servant went down the vineyard. And they came to the tree whose natural branches had been broken off and the wild branches grafted in. So this is the original tree. They come back to the mother tree, the one that was dying in the beginning. It was in the, in the center of the vineyard. And behold, all sorts of fruit did cumber the tree. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard did taste of the fruit, every sort according to its number. Now remember, this fruit wasn't the natural fruit that was growing it was grafted on branches that were producing fruit grafted onto the original tree. And there was a lot of fruit. It was covered with fruit. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard did taste of the fruit, every sort according to its number. And the Lord of the vineyard said, Behold, this long time have we nourished this tree, and I have laid up unto myself against the season much fruit. But behold, this time it hath brought forth much fruit and Here's the drum roll. None of it which is good. There is none of it which is good. And there's all kinds of bad fruit, and it profiteth me nothing, notwithstanding all our labor. Now it grieveth me that I should lose this tree. So remember, this was the tree that was dying. The branches were broken off, taken other places. Wild branches grafted on. Long time goes, and at first it's bringing forth good fruit. When he visits in the meridian of time, you know, the, the Gentiles are these wild branches. They were responding to Christ. But now in the last days, <clears throat> all these branches that had been grafted on were bringing lots and lots of fruit, and none of it was what the master wanted. So this is, you could you could kind of say this is maybe the point where the church was restored, but I don't, I don't really think it means that. I think we're, we're quick to draw this conclusion because these, when Joseph Smith prays in the vineyard or in, or in the grove and says, hey, what church should I join? He says, none of them. Well, that's maybe a parallel to this that, hey, there wasn't any good fruit. But I, I still think this day is is a day forward. And it could even take kind of the diversions that the restoration has taken in into account here because we were kind of grafted into this tree as well in a sense. But here's what happens. The master laments... And we, he said this uh, process of grafting branches into the wild tree nourished the roots, and they're alive. That, but, but he says, but the tree won't do anything if it's not bearing good fruit. He said, uh, I, I tried to preserve these roots, and for my own pr- purpose have I preserved them. Now, I'm summarizing in verse 81, 82, 83, but he says the wild branches have overrun it. And the wild branches aren't bringing forth any good fruit. It's all evil. So this is the dilemma. He looks around and he goes to the nethermost parts of the vineyard now where he had transplanted all those other little baby saplings. And in verse 87, he says, the, they went to the place uh, of the first, the second, the third, and they had all become corrupt. And then he says, and the wild fruit of the last had overcome that part of the tree which brought forth good fruit on the choice spot of ground. And verse 89 says, The Lord of the vineyard wept and said to the servant, What could I have done more for my vineyard? Behold, I knew that all the fruit of the vineyard save these had become corrupted. And now these which I once brought forth, which once brought forth good fruit, have also become corrupted. 
And now all the trees of my vineyard are good for nothing, save to be hewn down and cast in the fire. And behold, this last, whose branch hath withered away, I did plant in a good spot of ground. And even that which was choice unto me above all other parts of the land of my vineyard. And then he goes on to say, and you know that I even removed that which cumbered the ground before. So here's a clue as to this time period. This choice spot of ground we believe to be the Americas where the Nephites had the record. And that which cumbered the ground before was this Jaredite civilization which had populated the land. And, and they were gone. He had, he had cleared them out. That's why the Nephites find these bones only in one survivor of the civilization in a record. And so <clears throat> he, uh, he has this problem now where all the trees are bad. And then he laments and they've come to the conclusion in verse 107 that it was the loftiness of the vineyard, you know, the loftiness of the hearts of our of men. So after going through all this, he's about ready to mow everything down. And then verse 109, he says, let's go down and hew down the trees of the vineyard and cast them all into the fire. And so they don't cover my ground with all this evil fruit, because what more could I have done? And that's, I don't know if that was a, a real possibility of the earth, you know, but this whole plan is to bring back the natural fruit. And now all the trees, none of them have good fruit. So that's that's a challenge. So finally, the servant convinces the master in verse 110. He says, let's spare it a little longer. And the Lord said, yea, I will spare it a little longer, for it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. Wherefore, let us take of the branches of these, which I have planted in the nethermost parts of my vineyard, and let us graft them into the tree from whence they came. So what I think we said it in the first one. What was the point of grafting? Uh, to make the original tree, well, because it lines up better with the original tree. Yeah, yeah. And then in a spiritual sense, when it talked grafting, this was like coming back to First Nephi, I think, for... Um, he said, uh, coming to a knowledge of Christ. Yeah. Right. So first Nephi three said after the Gentiles had received the fullness of the gospel, the natural branches of the olive tree or the remnants of the house of Israel should be grafted in or come to the knowledge of the true Messiah, their Lord and redeemer. And there's, if you kind of scripture search the word grafting, you see this in a couple of places in, in the book of Mormon and the Bible. But so he wants to bring people to this knowledge of Christ, to salvation. And so here's, here's the th key to everything in our future, uh, spiritually speaking, and it's represented by what he just says right here. He said, let's take away from the branches that I've planted in the other parts, the little saplings, and let's try to graft them back onto the tree. They were growing and producing bad fruit but they were of the original DNA, if you will, of the mother tree. So it would literally like be putting the mother tree's children, if you will, back on the mother tree instead of wild. And then he says, and this is 113, let us pluck from the trees those branches whose fruit is most bitter and graft in the natural branches of the tree in the stead thereof. So where that old tree, original tree had been dying, they were going to cut off the bad stuff. And, and then they're going to say, not only just bad, they're going to, 113 says, and let us pluck from the trees those branches whose fruit is most bitter. So the worst is going to get grafted off. And some of these branches brought in. So how, 
I don't know that we we know or have in our arsenal of scripture a way of knowing what that would represent or who that would represent. But this idea of grafting back is important. This, I believe, is what the scriptures say in, in some cool way where it talks about the words of uh, the Nephites and the, and the Jews shall be exchanged. And I think this is the, um, in 2 Nephi 12, Nephi explains this. And in 2 Nephi 12, 71, he states, um, and backing up to about uh, verse 66, 2 Nephi 12, 66, for out of the books which shall be written, I will judge the world, every man according to his works, according to that which is written. For behold, I shall speak unto the Jews, and they shall write it. And I shall speak unto the Nephites, and they shall write it. And I shall speak unto other tribes of the house of Israel, which I have led away, and they shall write it. And I will also speak to all the nations of the earth, which might mean tribes of Israel, or it could be all people, and they shall write it. And here's how this relates back to Jacob 3 in the parable. And it shall come to pass that the Jews shall have the words of the Nephites, and the Nephites shall have the words of the Jews. So this is important because God's saying that their word is going to get exchanged. And then it says the Nephites and Jews will have the words of the lost tribes of Israel. This, when when the master says, hey, let's take branches from this tree and the, the nethermost tree and graft them back on the mother tree, that's the words of the Nephites coming back to Israel. And then when he says, and let's cut off some branches later, he says this, from the mother tree and put them back on the the little saplings in, in the other parts of the world. That's the words the Jews going back to the other people. So the, the words in the Bible get exchanged, the words in the Book of Mormon get exchanged. But it also includes tribes of Israel. So these must be the, the nethermost parts where he doesn't really explain their words get exchanged as well. So this is an exciting time in the future. I believe the Book of Mormon that we have, I believe other records maybe to come forth are all going to come to light. And this is going to be the thing that that brings life back to Israel. You could say that the words of the Jews have gone to the Nephite remnants or at least available to them, uh, whether it's Catholicism or different denominations. But they, by and large... um, I mean, I'm, I have all kinds of Spanish families. I go into their homes, and most of them have a Bible, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes more prevalent than than the Caucasian people. I mean, they're very spiritual uh, in a lot of those homes. I would think the Bible is available to to most people, mm-hmm. uh, unless you're really in the jungles of somewhere that mm-hmm. haven't. But the the words of the Nephites haven't gone to the house of Israel, by and large, to the Jews, I should say. Right. And and this seems to be, by this parable anyhow, the big event, the big event that keeps that original tree alive, if you will, is when those branches go back there. Because jumping down to 118, it says that it, it came to pass that they took from the natural tree, the mother tree, which had become wild, and grafted in under the natural trees, which had been wild. And they took of the natural tree, which had become wild and grafted into their mother tree. So, so the exchange happens there, but they nourish it, they trim it, they pluck it, and, and they cut away slowly the branches of evil. And they, they say there's, it doesn't happen all at once. And this is an interesting thing to ponder in history, which maybe 
eventually this movement uh, of the, the truth coming back to Israel overwhelms the world when, when everyone sees it's obvious. But it seems to imply it might happen kind of slowly or maybe even under the radar, if you will. Just my words, it's not scripture, right? But this, the fact that it says uh, in verse 122, he said, we're going to pluck from the trees which the branches are ripened that much perish and cast them in the fire. And I do this per, that perhaps the roots thereof may take strength because of their goodness and because of the change of the branches that the good may overcome the evil. And and he talks about how he's preserved these roots and everything, but then he talks about how it's not going to happen all at once. As the good grows, the bad is going to be removed. And it's like this kind of equal growth. As, as the good grows, more bad is removed. So it's a process. And that's that's just an interesting thing. It just doesn't seem like the, from this prophecy that it's going to happen overnight, but it's going to happen and it's going to grow. So then that's kind of explained in 131 where it says, you shall not clear away the bad thereof all at once, lest the roots thereof should be too strong for the graft and the graft thereof should perish and I would lose the trees in my vineyard. So it's kind of like the the roots, I believe, you know, in, in, in the tree sense are like, okay, if you clear everything off, the roots need too much moisture. They need too much nourishment from these branches. So you can't take all the branches off once. You got to wait as some grows and then, and then you know, not do it all at once or the whole tree's going to die in a, in a botanical sense, I guess. But this, um, uh, this process uh, becomes successful. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. When they bring these natural branches back, uh, over to verse 133, um, the branches of the natural tree will I graft in again unto the natural tree, and the branches of the natural tree will I graft into the natural branches of the tree. Those are the, the little transplants. And thus will I bring them together again and shall bring forth the natural fruit, and they shall be one. And the bad shall be cast away, yea, even out of all the land of my vineyard. For behold, only this once will I prune my vineyard. Part of what I what I love about this prophecy is that it helps explain other prophecy that we find in the Book of Mormon that we don't always find in the Bible. One of the major um, components of Nephi's vision back in First Nephi three is this vision he has of a day to come when there are two churches only, and he sees this. He sees. God's people, and they're a smaller number, and he sees the rest of the world, literally, and you're kind of on one side or the other. I really believe this is describing that future and, and this this bad that's overwhelmed the world and the good that's coming back. The, the good is small, but it's overtaking the bad. Um, so much is lost in the modern evangelical description of future prophecy when, you know, it takes these abrupt turns like, oh, well, the it's just all about the mark of the beast and it's just all about this world domination thing. And then it's about the good people being raptured. I mean, these are like major bullet points of most evangelicals description of future prophecy. But the, the, the Book of Mormon tells it totally different. It's like God's people stay on the earth and they overcome the evil and they do it with God in, in the midst. So in third Nephi, Jesus talks about this city being built and that from there, 
goes out this word first to the remnant, then to the Israelites, and then to the whole world. This is First Nephi 10, the first six or seven verses. Well, what's interesting is that when they see some success in the grove here with these transplants where it's starting to bring forth some fruit, um, at 136, it says, it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said to his servant, um, and he said, hey, go bring some other servants. And they did as the Lord commanded, and he brought other servants, and they were few. So it wasn't like legions and legions, apparently. And the Lord of the vineyard said to them, Go to and labor in the vineyard with your mites, for this is the last time I will nourish my vineyard. And if you labor with me with your mites, you shall have joy in the fruit that I lay up. Now here's the point. It says in 140, the servants did go and labor with their mites, and the Lord of the vineyard labored also with them, and they did obey the commandments of the Lord of the vineyard in all things. So here it's not just the servants going out. The, the Lord... Uh, who was orchestrating all this goes with them. And so just a cross-reference scripture is is 3 Nephi 10 because I think what we're reading in the parable right now at this point in time when the servants go out is exactly what Jesus says in 3 Nephi 10. Uh, and, and he says, uh, starting at verse 1, um, if the Gentiles repent and hearken to my words and harden not their hearts, I will establish my church among them and they shall come into the covenant and be numbered among this the remnant of Jacob who have given this land for their inheritance. And they shall assist my people, the remnant of Jacob, and as also as many of the house of Israel shall come that they might build a city which shall be called the New Jerusalem. And they shall assist my people that they may be gathered in who are scattered upon the face of the land to the New Jerusalem. And then this is where he says, and then shall the powers of heaven come down among them and I also will be in the midst. And then shall the work of the Father commence to start in that day, even when this gospel shall be preached among the remnant of this people. So I think this is important because I think it puts in perspective, actually, when this parable really gets into full swing, it seems to be at a time when this holy city is established and Jesus is in our midst in in power and he's directing and orchestrating this great commission to send this word back out to the world. I, I don't, you know, there was a, a time in the early days of the church, I even have the quote from Times and Seasons, although I won't read it right now, where uh, a prominent member of the 12 apostles at the time of Joseph Smith's death was recorded as saying, we are 14 years into the millennium and the, and the 14 and the 12 apostles are these ones who are talked about in Jacob 3 who are these servants to go out. Now, I'm sharing this because just to say that people have had it wrong. I mean, we weren't 14 years into the millennium right now. That would mean we're about 200 years in, in, into it right now. And that's a, you know, that, that was just somebody's notion. But the point of it is that this laying the scriptures out, this last time he prunes his vineyard, seems to be really the the very purpose of Zion. You know, this this thing that we talk about, everyone in the Restoration hopes for and dreams of this day when Zion comes. And in my mind growing up, I always thought that Zion was this, uh, the end goal, like Zion's here, whew, we're done. And according to this, Zion's established, and then no, the, the bigger work even starts mm-hmm. then, right? Yeah, exactly. And Christ 
being here directing it, I, I really don't, I don't see, Corey, the church being, in my personal opinion, I don't think it's going to be reorganized and restructured again with, with all of these quorums and councils and standing councils and traveling. I, I just, or even another prophet, but rather, uh, I mean, I hope that it's Christ coming back and directing this work, as it says, I will be in their midst, that that's going to be the the next organization of the church, I hope. Yeah, exactly. You know, this, uh, like you point out in 3 Nephi 10, he says, uh, uh, hey, if they repent, I will establish my church among them. And uh, the other day, I, I won't go through it all right now, but the, I, I, it occurred to me that where 3 Nephi 9 and 10 chapter breaks, it broke a, a beautiful Hebrew parallel right in the very middle because in the in the end of 3 Nephi 9, it's talking about the cities destroyed by judgment, but in 3 Nephi 10, it's talking about a holy city being built. Um, in the in 3 Nephi 9, it's talking about the Gentiles' judgment if they don't repent. And in 3 Nephi 10, it's talking about the promise to the Gentiles if they do repent. And in in 3 Nephi 9, it's talking about all the, you know, destruction and things that are going to happen uh, from Gentiles not repenting. And in 3 Nephi 10, it talks about how they're going to build up the waste places. And and then it all starts where in 3 Nephi 9, it's from, I think it's Isaiah 52, where it says, hey, I will, God says, I'm going to go before you and be your rearward. And then in 3 Nephi 10, it concludes it all saying, I'm going to go before you and be your rearward. And, and so... You know, I don't know, there's just a lot of parallels there. You know, the Gentiles rejected Jesus uh, in 3 Nephi 9, and in 3 Nephi 10, Jesus is in our midst. You know, he's, he's come back. And so uh, there's, like you say, this whole thing begins over again. And I agree with you in this. We've held ideas that have been the ideas that maybe the things we've wanted to believe or the the ideas we felt we had to believe to connect the dots you know, but God's the one who says, hey, my ways aren't your ways. And we've we've only seen a solution to the problems in the church and the restoration and the demise of things by thinking, hey, everything has to be put back to the kind of the way it was in Kirtland and then we'll be okay, right? And I, I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but the point being, um, that's kind of man's idea. But I think everything in the scripture is that, no, the real solution is that Jesus is finally in charge, you know. Yeah, I wish as a as a people we really embrace that notion and and focus on the work of the of the Lord and and this parable and what's going to happen in this time period rather than you know always uh, trying to restructure or or put offices back in because uh, this is just more well it's it's more realistic it's it's written it's prophesied and. And I don't know, maybe it makes us feel better, better trying to, like, we feel like we can do something, trying to establish a certain order again or whatever. But this is just an exciting story that you know, Christ came and was among the apostles when he went to the house of Israel the first time. And and the church went out and expanded from there. You know, He didn't go to the Gentiles. And then it makes you wonder how this fits in um, as he's going to be amongst them the second or this last time to bring the gospel forth to the to the um, house of Israel again, the remnant of it, and then also to the whole world then. 
Yeah. And I like what you just said. You, you, you said something and you corrected yourself. You said like this second time or this last time. What's interesting is that both of those terms are used in, in the end of this. Uh, Jacob 3 is the parable, but Jacob 4 is Jacob's kind of um, his summary of it all. And he actually says this, and this is, oh, yeah. this is important because he, I'm, I'm going to find it here. He, he, he basically goes on to explain that what we're talking about here is not just uh, any event. He says, uh, turn into it right now. So he, he says, uh, this is Jacob 4, after the conclusion of the parable, which we really haven't got to yet, but he says, the things which the prophet Zenos spake concerning the house of Israel, in the which he likened them to a tame olive tree, must surely come to pass. And in that day that he shall set his hand again the second time to recover his people is the day, yea, even the last time that the servants of the Lord will go forth in his power to nourish and prune his vineyard. Now, it's interesting because he said the second time, it's the last time as well. Yeah, I did that on purpose. I know you did. (laughs) (laughs) You were prophetically thinking. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And see, this, this second time is explained in Isaiah 11, and I know we've touched on this previously, but... The first part of Isaiah 11, it describes Jesus, and it, then it describes this, um, this Zion on earth, you know, the wolf to with the lamb. And then he says, in that day is the day I'm going to set forth my hand. And so this all, to me, describes a different feel of the world and the future in Zion um, than anything that I think I had dreamed up in my head. Because I always kind of felt like, hey, well, Zion comes, and then, if you're not there, the world's kind of shut out, you know, right? Or whatever happens on is just darkness. But it's like Zion's purpose is still redemptive, you know, to to share with the world. And I I don't know that I still understand it, even though with all these words here. But what this seems to describe is that there's a time coming in the future when Jesus will move in spirit on this remnant of Jacob, you know, the, the tribe of Joseph, his people, and they come to a powerful recognition that Jesus is the Christ. And the Gentiles learn from it. Just the way when Samuel the Lamanite was preaching on the wall to the Nephites, you know, his people had been converted and empowered by God's spirit. And the Nephites who had been the the owners of the gospel, if you will, were kind of like, they were the decadent ones now slipping morally and everything socially, spiritually. And so then when these Nephites come back and start preaching them, I fully believe it's going to be a something like that. In fact, Something I learned this week, we have that story about the 2,000 young men of Helaman who are the soldiers who none of them got killed. Um, What I didn't realize was that they weren't just any 2,000 men. They were pure descendants of Laman and Lemuel because it was their fathers. They were the ones who laid down the swords and then died in the act of praising God when the enemies came that day and and they used to fight and then these ones weren't going to fight. Well, It was the children of them, but what the scripture says, and this is the part that I just saw for the first time, was that they, those Lamanites who died, they were pure descendants of Laman and Lemuel, it says. So their sons, the 2,000 sons of Helaman, who in the very last end of Alma, you know, are these magnificent warriors who, even though they were wounded, they couldn't, they weren't killed. I think that's a type as well for the days to come that Laman's people who have this prophecy to come back to God in, in faith, 
I think that's part of this too, that there's going to be like a remnant who's in that same way, got God's power and protection. And so, and become the example for the, for the Gentiles. And so they're the ones who are going to have the spirit of Christ in their heart. And they're the ones who are not going to be confused with anything more or anything less than the, than the pure gospel of Jesus. And like you were saying, Mike, about, you know, everything's not going to be put back the way it, it is right now. Some of these things have just confused our people. We, we sometimes miss the point of the gospel with all these other elements of what may or may not be part of the restoration in the future. It's what Jesus is going to direct. And, and the, like he is the one who said nothing more, nothing less. So summing up the whole parable of the olive tree without, uh, without using the scriptural words that are such a flurry of so many of them. Jesus, uh, brought the gospel to the, to the Jews, to the house of Israel, and they rejected him. And then they, he went to the, uh, not all of them rejected him, but by and large, I mean, they killed him. And then he went to the, the apostles went to the Gentiles and, and the church grew through the Gentiles and became, the word became corrupted through time. And, through the Gentiles, the word came back uh, as far as the plainness and the, and the precious words of God, of the gospel, and how to come to Christ through the Book of Mormon. And eventually that's going to go back to uh, the house of Israel and the Lamanites to, for them to understand as well. And uh, before that great... Um, before that great day, you think then Jesus will be here to direct that movement, and maybe maybe not as uh, front and center up until that time. Do you think? Hard to say. Yeah, I've wondered. You know, because it doesn't imply that it's like after his uh, return and glory, but who knows? I, I I don't really know. But yeah, everything you've said, I think that's part of it. And then, so in my growing up, and this is how I see this differently now, I realized that. Zion is going to be the epicenter of Jesus's direction to all these missionaries to the world to overcome the evil of the world. And, um, and it's going to be doing it by the same way that we're given in the gospel right now by, by hearts of men changing. Um, do you have the scriptures up right now? Uh, Oh, I have my, I have my book of Mormon in front of me. Oh, of course. Well, so, um, he makes a promise and you want to read, um, starting at verse, uh, one thirty six. Uh, or 137 right in there. And there's just a few verses right there that kind of capture the end of the story. Which, which chapter 3? Chapter 3, yeah. You want me to read verse 137? Yeah. And the Lord of the vineyard saith unto them, Go to and labor in the vineyard with your mites, for behold, this is the last time that I shall nourish my vineyard. For the end is nigh at hand, and the season speedily cometh. And if ye labor with your mites with me, ye shall have joy in the fruit which I shall lay up unto myself against the time which will soon come. And it came to pass that the servants did go to it and labor with their mites. And the Lord of the vineyard labored also with them. And they did obey the commandments of the Lord of the vineyard in all things. And there began to be natural fruit again in the vineyard and the natural branches began to grow and thrive exceedingly. I just Isn't that interesting right there, that description? Two things. They obeyed the commandments in all things, you know, 
But then I love this. The natural branches began to grow and thrive exceedingly, you know, in that <clears throat> to me, that's a comforting picture to think if the natural branches growing and thriving exceedingly mean that that's people's response to Jesus coming back, that there's going to be this tremendous growth and, and it's going to be obvious in the world. What, what do you, so in verse 136 though, it says, and it came to pass the Lord of the vineyard sent his servant. So I, I picture the father sending the son and the servant went and did as the Lord had commanded him and brought other servants and they were few. What time period do you think we're at right here at the end of this story? Is this this last time it says? Yeah. So not the first time Christ came. No, no. So think, what do you think that is that he brought other servants and they were few? I, th- I think this ties into this third Nephi 10 where Jesus is in our midst. And it says that's when the work will commence, when you'll go out among the remnant of this people. Um, I think it also cross-correlates with Revelation where it talks about the 144,000. Now, it doesn't sound like a few, but if you're talking billions of people in the world, maybe it is. But nevertheless, uh, this idea that there are people sent out, they seem to be missionaries in that in that revelation. But I don't know. I think this is in the future when Jesus is in our midst, 3510, and, and the work commences. I love that the, the Lord of the vineyard labored also with them. Yeah, yeah. And so I think when it says the... Um, uh, well, I wonder why does they why does it go back to the Lord of the Vineyard labored with him? Shouldn't it be the servant of the Vineyard labored with him? Or is he now? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that something? So I think that's the point. Is that well? I think in this story, I mean, it's sort of the the literary device to represent the father and the son, but in the sense that the the son is the fleshly version and mm-hmm. the father is the power. It's like, we're going to have the power and the spirit and the everything of God, you know, in our midst. And he labored with him. Isn't that, that's a good thing you point well, out. Well, yeah, because he switched. It's like whenever he's after he's sent and he's with the people, then he's all, he's called the Lord as well when he's here with them. Yeah. Uh, and so if you, yeah, I get that. That's uh, that's a good point you make right there. Yeah, because it says the Lord is not the servant, is it? Well, it says the Lord of the vineyard sent his servant, and the servant went and did as the Lord commanded him. And then look what happens in the next verse. Now it's the Lord of the vineyard saying to the people, go and labor with me. And now he's being called the Lord once he's down here with us. <laughs> Yeah, the Lord of the vineyard labored also with them. Isn't that something? I love that. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting time in the future, and it's a hopeful time because for whatever we're going through right now as a church or even just, you know, you personally if you're listening, um, just know that the, the future that God has promised is bright, that every day is not going to be, you know, getting darker and, 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 and full of concern and worry. Yes, we might go through hard times, and some of us are going through hard times right now as I speak, but the fact is God's promises are sure, and this is the revelation from the beginning that's been promised is that how all this gets resolved is that God's going to be in our midst, and he's going to, you know, that this just gets better and better, the descriptions. Look at 144. So 
the, the natural fruit starting to grow exceedingly, right? And they labored with their diligence in 143, even until all the bad had been cast out of the vineyard. I mean, that's really cool. At no time are God's people raptured off the earth. But, but notice 144. And they became like unto one body, and the fruit were equal. And the Lord of the vineyard had preserved unto himself the natural fruit, which was most precious. You know, when this last time, I, I just... I was just scanning through the rest of this. I don't have to go back and look at this, but there's no longer a Lord and a servant. It's just the Lord. To finish out the story, it's just the Lord. Oh it's like gosh. he took over the... Oh, my gosh. That's interesting. I mean, he's talking in first person now. Before, it was always... He was... Before, there was two separate, you know, the servants pleading with the Lord, don't destroy your don't destroy your vineyard, and the Lord saying, it's my vineyard. Wow. Uh, but look at the end. Behold, this last time have we nourished my vineyard, and thou beholdest, I have done according to my will, and I've preserved the natural fruit. And it just goes on. <laughs> You've been laboring with me in my vineyard. Now he's, oh my he's speaking at his, his vineyard, and before he was recognizing it was the Lord's vineyard, and he was the servant. But... But it's like he's he's now in full place of the Lord. Wow. Wow. I love that. I love that. And it talks about them being equal, you know, and sharing with him. And here's the Lord's the ones. And he's no more, no longer pleading that, um, you know, wait a while. He says, my vineyard will I cause to be burned with fire. Isn't that interesting? Because, you know, in a, in a way, there's a, a separate parallel of just salvation again. You know, we've talked about returning to the Father's presence, right? Yeah, which is, this is, uh, yeah, um, another thing like, well, you know, are they, is it really going to be two plate? No, no not can't in the be. end. All in these the servants end, who worked are with the, the Lord, the owner. Which at that point, it looks like it was, <laughs> there is no servant in the Lord. It's all Lord <laughs> at the end. There's Isn't no more something? need to have, God um, in the oh, form wow. of man because... Man is with he, God in his realm be, in a Because, sense. yeah, but like he's not going to destroy oh. us anymore. Like he asked, you said the one time he had to limit himself in the form of a man or, we, or his presence would have destroyed us in our sin. But in the end, there's no more need to do that. <laughs> oh, wow. That is so interesting. Is what you, I, know, you see, yeah, you can definitely see that spiritual parallel of salvation brought through that... Right. There's no intermediary anymore. Mm -hmm. It's him. Well, those that have read this parallel before, maybe maybe you've seen this this parable, but if you haven't, uh, I'm going to go through it again. But just that's just something to think about. Let the Holy Spirit bear record if this is, or maybe maybe it's just a language thing, but it sure seems pretty clear to me that once he comes this last time, he kind of morphs into the Lord. I mean, is this the, <laughs> the um, coming in power? I don't know. but Yeah, and so, you know, I was just going to say, uh, we get lots of great emails or comments. Sometimes it's by a text if you know us, or sometimes it's through email on the website or the podcast site. But uh, if you got a thought or comment on this, please weigh in. Tell us what you think. We'll, we'll consider it and share it. Um, you know, this interesting thing to me and how this story ends, it's like, again, with my growing up years, Zion was like the end and everything was good after that. But he says, we enjoyed this for a long time. And he said, we, verse 148, you know, he's, for a long time will I lay up the fruit of my vineyard under my own self against the season. And for the last time I've nourished it and dunged it. And I'm going to lay up myself this fruit for a long time. And then it says, 151, when the time cometh that evil fruit shall again come into my vineyard, 
Then will I cause the good and bad to be gathered, and the good will I preserve, and the bad will I cast away into its own place. And that would be the final judgment, it sounds like. Yeah, and then cometh the season and the end, and my vineyard will I cause to be burned with fire. Right. A new heaven, a new earth. Right, right. So he takes us all the way to the end of the millennium, to use that term, you know, this, but the, it, it's like the process of Zion in the in the beginning of the millennium. Maybe are all um, I don't know. I don't know where the division is right now. As as far as at this time when the good is is all present, is that sometime like into the millennium? Do you think, or is it like I I don't know, um, or is it like I I kind of think it's not because Isaiah says it'll come to pass in the last days when the house of the Lord will be established in the mountains and all the nations will flow unto it. And they'll say, hey, let us learn of her ways. And they're going to take their plowshares and beat them to pruning hooks. And that just that description, the Zion's established, and yet there's nations flowing unto it to learn. Mm-hmm. Just makes me think that it's not just like this boom transition over overnight. And maybe that's what the whole story here means is that that's how come like as the good grows, the bad is removed here and there, is that maybe that's what's actually happening in Zion. It's it's like the more righteous. That's what, yeah, read it through this this time. I say it like it seems to me when he says I he comes down for the last time that that's the beginning of the millennium. I kind of think it's, that's what it means. And maybe this whole idea of, you know, his power in our midst, maybe, I don't know if that's at his coming in glory or what. I just, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't ever use that term here. But exactly that, it seems that to me, I see the same parallel as in Nephi's day when Jesus comes after he's resurrected and there's been darkness and destruction and the voice out of heaven says, hey, you guys were the more righteous, right? You were saved because you were more righteous. It doesn't say because you were all perfect. It just says you were the ones who didn't stone the prophets. You didn't, you know, reject the words. And so I think this is the parallel of the beginning of the millennium which goes back to what we've said about section 76. Hey, these are the people who died without the law. These are also the people who kept the commandments, right? Who are alive on the earth and the people who didn't totally reject and and become evil. They're all coming and learning about Jesus. I, I think that's what it is. But at the same time, we definitely see that in the last days, there's going to be this uh, force working against God and his purposes which they call this church of the whore of all the earth, right? Mm-hmm. And that gets defeated. That's described in more detail by Nephi's vision in First Nephi 3. Yeah, that's a huge key in 151. Uh, so this must, I mean, that sounds like the very end. It says, when the, when the time cometh, the evil fruit shall come again into the vineyard. That has to be, that is the last time because it, it goes on to say, um, but boy, isn't that the perfect, uh, once again, the perfect statement of the good I will preserve unto myself and the bad will I cast away into its own place. Yeah. And the person speaking here is the Lord. There's no Lord and servant anymore. It's just the <laughs> Lord. I mean, that's that is so interesting. And my vineyard. Yeah, that's so. Well, that's uh, I just I think as a people that we should be. I think our hope would be not to have the the whole hierarchy of the church restored again, but to have this this be the the, the millennial reign to begin. Jesus comes back and, and establishes his righteousness. I I would I hope that that's where we're at. I don't know if for some small season the we'll have an organized church like we had before. It just 
I don't know, but it'll be the church matter. that Jesus wants because yeah. He says, "I'm going to establish my church. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do it exactly." You know? And you know what you were just saying, Mike? These cool parallels you're drawing and everything with salvation. The next chapter where uh, Jacob just summarizes the whole parable, Jacob chapter four, verse four, he says this: "And blessed, and how blessed are they who have labored diligently in His vineyard, and how cursed are they which shall be cast out to their own place." Isn't that something? It's like just to, it's it's mm-hmm. like here, the people who work, they're going to be blessed and they are sharing with him in this wonderful fruit and this creation he's created. And the people who reject him and it, they're not there. Mm-mm. Again, it's, it's one or the other. One tree, one, I mean, you have a big vineyard, but it's the one... The one tree and yeah, and then it finally says, "And the world shall be burned with fire." I mean, that's verse five. So it's like, here it is: you're on the left hand, or you're on the right hand, and there's going to be a new heaven and new earth. And you know, I just, I just, I love all this symbolism. And then, of course, Jacob doesn't hold back, and he says, "I beseech you with words of soberness that you'll repent, come with full purpose of heart, cleave unto God as He cleaveth unto you, and while His arm of mercy is extended toward you in the light of day." Harden not your hearts. I wonder when um, it says the 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 earth will be burned, um, that it's not going to be this desolate, you know, looking earth where everything's black and takes. But that it's like this holy, and when it's when it's done, it's like this the perfect you know Garden of Eden, the perfect earth mm-hmm. that was intended from the beginning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We've gone out west several times with all the fires in the past several years. It almost got hard to plan a vacation. There were so many because, you know, you'd want to go to Colorado or Colorado Springs and you couldn't because of the fire and then you want to go. So we we just said, it's hard to tell, but but we went out there you know, a couple of years after those and you just, you see the, um, the Badlands, uh, the Custer State Park, the remnants of the huge fire they had there in South Dakota. And it's just these black trees and you know, it's good for the environment, but it's going to take, you know, decades for, for that to heal mm-hmm. and, and to thrive again. And, uh, I don't think that's what the the earth is going to look like after Christ burns it. I, I picture this lush, perfect, perfect, heaven <laughs> yeah yeah well, that'd be for sure. neat for sure yeah beyond our a holy fire yeah yeah well hey this was a really this was exciting uh anything else you got on the on the um on your mind about no i just think that this gives me hope too that this whole story is is given to us so that we can know that our future is really sure and that um to let's try to rise above the the politics of the church and the issues of our day, you know? Yeah. Well, that was uh, that was fun to read through, Corey. I, the end of that is interesting. The very end, Christ coming back to be among us as the gospel goes forth everywhere. Yeah, and that he, uh, he has a plan to uh, make us equal and share with him, and uh, that's the reason why we're all just walking each other home. Until next time.